Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Animation Fascination. I'm Mark Viver, and with me again is guest host Stanford Clark. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is Farhan Qureshi. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. How, how about you, sir? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good to be on the show. Feel good that I, I didn't mess up your name. <laughs> no, no, you, you actually got it really, really uh, spot on. Awesome. Uh, and if you guys haven't listened to the show before, the podcast focuses on the world of animation. Each episode, we feature an animated series or film from the past or present, whether it's traditionally hand-drawn, computer-generated, or stop-motion. If it's animated, it's up for discussion with us. So with that, we'll be back in a few seconds with our little tiny news blurb this week, because we're going to try to keep most of our news for those news episodes. But we'll see you guys in a few seconds. the news for the week uh we're gonna just gonna be talking about the oscar nominations get everybody's kind of feeling for what they thought about the nominations and if they're upset about any snubs that didn't get in uh we'll start with with you far and what do you think about the the films that got nominated for both the features and the shorts um gosh i don't know i mean i know you and i i had a uh, conversation on twitter about this um I kind of felt, compared to last year's 2012 shortlist, this year kind of fell short, um, you know, to be totally honest. Um, I think Frozen is probably the, really the standout one, um, although I did like the Cruise as well. But yeah, I, I, I don't know, I just kind of feel that, yeah, it's um, not, not quite up to last year's um, level. And have you gotten a chance to see any of those shorts that got nominated? Um, I haven't had a look at all of them. Um, normally I do look at the shorts. I've, I've been too busy making my own shorts to actually watch yeah. any of this year. But um, no, I think the shorts, the shorts generally, I think, show, well, obviously they're shorter, so you've got a chance to take a bit more of a risk than on, on a big major studio feature. Right. So um, I'm always happy with the shorts. I, I think um, they're, they're all pretty good. Definitely. How about, how about you, Stanford? What do you think about the nominations? Well, as we've uh, written on, on on the site, we're we're big Pixar fans, and I think it's a bit of a disappointment, at least at Monsters University, didn't get uh, at least a nomination. Uh, I I think that probably my my two favorite films that I've seen are Frozen and The Croods. Uh, I haven't seen The Wind Rises yet, just because it hasn't opened. Yeah. In wide release, not you know, it won't open until till next month. I guess we could see it just before the Oscars get get I don't think Even Ernest and Celestine is open in the U.S. No, I don't think it has either. It's played at what the Toronto Film Festival, I think, is what where it played in North America. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm, you know, my vote's with Frozen. 
as if it counted, but we'll see what we'll see what happens. <laughs> Regarding shorts, I, the only one I've seen uh, of the group is Get a Horse, which I loved, and and uh, I'm excited to do some homework and see see the other nominated shorts as well. Definitely, I haven't gotten to see any of those shorts yet. Uh, usually, th- there's a few theater chains here in the the U.S. that that'll do. Uh, like special screenings for like the Oscar-nominated films and and the shorts, so I'm hoping that that happens again. And that way, maybe I can go check them out that way. Well, hoping they do something like that in the UK too, so you can check them out if you get a chance. But yeah, they do actually. Um, for the UK, uh, people are lucky enough to be on the the nomination panel. Um, but yeah, I think um, it, it's kind of hard to judge it until you see all of them. Yeah side by side with hopefully the oscar nomination panel will will have done definitely last year i know that uh, itunes also uh, put them up so that you could buy them and watch them that way too so if if anything and hopefully that that'll be available as well because i think i was able to find them all on youtube last year yeah so even (laughs) if anything hopefully that'll be a way to watch them as well but yeah I, i think that uh i can't say for sure since I haven't seen Ernest and Celestine or The Wind Rises yet, but I think with the amount of the awards, Frozen's uh, already won for the different award shows that it's been nominated for. It's probably going to be like the the runaway kind of award winner of this season, I'm assuming. Yeah, I I actually had the chance um, when Disney, they came to London to interview lots of people for Frozen, and um, I got shortlisted for an interview. And they, they showed me a lot of the artwork, and I had to say, I mean, I didn't get the job in the end, but I mean, um, right. it, it, from what I'd seen at that stage, it was just absolutely, you know, beyond anything that I had seen up until then. So that's why I am kind of, you know, hoping yeah. Frozen <laughs> to, to come through. But only because I met the animators on their name. I'm sure they're all lovely people. Yeah, they seem like Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. They seem like pretty nice, pretty nice people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are the Oscar nominations. Uh, again, the it was the Crudes, Just Me Two, Frozen, Ernest and Celestine, The Wind Rises. They got nominated for features, and then for shorts it was Get a Horse, Feral, Room on the Broom, Mr. Hubble, Hubblot, <laughs> Hugh Bloat, who uh, whatever, and and Possessions. <laughs> Uh, which possessions looks interesting too, because that looks like it's uh, kind of like it's kind of like Paperman, where it's uh, CG mixed with like hand-drawn animation. So I'm def- definitely interested in checking that out too. And Feral's got a very kind of almost like a children's book come to life animation kind of style to it. So I'm interested in checking that one out too. A room on the broom, actually. Um... That's done by a very famous author here in uh, the UK. She's she's written a lot of books that I read to my kids, and um, oh, yeah. it's a big stage. Well, I don't say it's a big stage play; it's a stage play as well. It's going round here, so um, very cool. I know my kids will be happy if Room and the Broom wins. Yeah, I, I I saw that it was based on a book, so I'm gonna have to check that out as well. Yes, yes, yeah, likewise. I read her books. I read. I've got about three or four her books, and we read them every night. Um, I think they should, they should make a movie of all of her books. Um, I mean, they started on a Gruffalo a few years ago. Oh, yeah, Gr- Gruffalo was awesome, uh, and the Gruffalo's Child. Yeah, 
Yeah, I was watching a Gruffalo's Child on Christmas Day, and I was making uh, effects reference notes instead of enjoying the story. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's great. It's CG, but it almost it almost looks like it's like uh, claymation for a lot of the, the scenes in that, which is, is pretty cool the way they can do that. Yeah, I mean the only thing I was because I read those stories to my kids, I put on the monster's voice, and when I watched okay. the Gruffalo's Child. I realized I was putting on a wrong monster's voice. So um, <laughs> that should have been put up on a Scottish accent. That uh, would have worked better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, those those are that's the news for this week. So we'll be back in a few seconds with our recommendations for the week. Hey, and we're back with our recommendations for the week. Uh, the first recommendation this week that uh, I was just watching, uh, they just added it to Netflix Instant. It was Inside Pixar. It was a Bloomberg special that was on TV last last year, around the time Brave came out. It's about 19 minutes long, so it's not that not very long at all. And it's basically just like kind of going through like the history of, of Pixar and how the studio started with George Lucas and then Steve Jobs purchasing it from him. Uh, it's got a pretty good interview with John Lasseter on there as well. And if, if you guys haven't had a chance to check it out yet, you can check it out on there. Now, I think the, the interview's on YouTube too, so even if you don't have Netflix, you can just Google search Bloomberg uh, inside Pixar and you should be able to find it on there. It's pretty, pretty cool, especially if you're a fan of Pixar or just animation studios in general to see kind of the backstory to how the studio came to be where it is and one of the you know the biggest creators uh, for that studio like his story with it and how he's you know now the head of uh, Walt Disney animation and Imagineering as well so I definitely would suggest checking that out if you guys have not seen it yet this week I'd like to recommend uh, an article I read on vulture.com it's uh, Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, who are the songwriters of all the music to uh, Disney's Frozen, they're, uh, they're, they review some of the fan-created videos that are, that are all the rage now on YouTube. You've probably seen in your Facebook feeds and uh, you know Twitter and everything links to these videos that people are posting of their children, most often singing songs from Frozen. Uh, I think Disney was smart to put out that karaoke just Those karaoke tracks on the on the uh, on the, that deluxe version of the Frozen soundtrack, but Bobby and Kristen do some reviews of uh, they, well they find some funny videos and and put put their reviews. So I, I highly recommend it. We'll put the link in the in the podcast notes. But it's everything from you know of course just the traditional cute little just adorable little kids singing Let It Go to. Uh, 
a horror movie mix version of Do You Want to Build a Snowman that you really need to see, you need oh. to check out to uh, to believe. That's one that Bobby Love has actually found on Tumblr. But anyway, that's that's my recommendation for the week. I hope you'll enjoy that. Very cool. I always like seeing uh, miss or like reinterpretations of yes. Stuff. And there are tons of them. Just you know, people are going crazy with these with these Frozen songs. Definitely. Uh, what would you like to recommend, Farhan? Um, I follow this guy on YouTube. His name's Chris Stockman. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch his movie reviews ever. Um, anyway, at the end, he does this. Uh, so it's S T U C K M A double N. Um, he does this end-of-year review for 2013, and he's done a most anticipated movies of 2014. Um, I kind of think he's on the ball, and he knows what he's talking about. I won't, I won't say what he's recommended. You can uh, look it up. I think it's most anticipated movies of 2014, Chris Stockman. Um, I really like his stuff, and I, I watch his channel a lot because... Unfortunately, I don't get as much time to watch movies as I used to, so I kind of listen to him for 15 minutes to uh, keep myself up to date. Awesome. We'll have to, uh, what, so his, what is the, the channel for that? It's Chris Stockman. Stockman. As in stuck, being stuck, S-T-U-C-K and M-A-N-N. Oh. Um, yeah, he's also on Twitter. I, I talk to him quite a lot, and um, he's done a worst films of 2013 most anticipated least anticipated he has lots of lists um and they're always quite fun to watch awesome i'll definitely put that in the show notes as well for people to check that out absolutely all right so those are our recommendations for the week everyone uh, we'll be back in a few seconds as oh the video started playing on his youtube channel <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll be back in a few seconds with when we're coming back to interview Farhan about his career and everything like that. So stay tuned, guys. And we're back with our main topic for the week. We're going to be interviewing Farhan Q. Rishi about his career, uh, his different films he's worked on, what's got him into animation, and the, a couple different books that he's written as well. So, I guess starting, we'll, we'll go with the quintessential what first got you into the animation industry and kind of inspired you to go after your dream. Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. I think with a lot of people um certainly when i started out in animation it's quite a new is a new thing as an unknown quantity and it's a big risk to throw in your your day job obviously i, I had had a reasonably good career um certainly a responsible career and um one day i i decided to uh, go back to university and do my masters in animation and um Obviously, that was a big, big, uh, big risk, but it it paid off. From there, I got 
lots of what really got me into it is I, I was a filmmaker here in London and um, I used to meet a lot of other filmmakers and I noticed in their movies you'd have a couple of guys who worked at a camera hire rental facility and um, on Friday nights they would take all the cameras out and return them on Sunday and make movies um, at the same time you had people work for sound and lighting departments so I really thought to myself, if I want to do something that uh, will set myself apart, why not animation? Because, you know, it's what, what I enjoy the most. And um, yeah, I just threw my job in, went back to university, did my master's in animation, and um, the story begins there. <laughs> uh, that's really interesting about the start. So you say that you really love an an animation. What inspired you? to to take that course or you know to take that direction and what continues to inspire you in your work oh gosh you know i it may sound cliche but the people who i've worked with in animation they're some of the most amazing minds and you know just just to be around them in the same room as them you know you, you kind of do it for free the fact that they're actually paying you <laughs> to work with these people yes. is you know it's a real icing on the cake I guess what inspires me is is more the storytelling aspect of animation. Um, I love the movement, I love the details, I love the, the colourful and the way you can stylize everything, but really to, to, to tell a story, um, whether it's through, through the animating a character or, or editing certain pieces together, that, that's definitely my you know, I, I, I'd do it all day if I could. Um, but, yeah, it's just kind of telling the story is my reason. I'll, you know, you put yourself through a lot of pain sometimes animating something to get something to work. But looking at the bigger, broader picture, that's really what inspires me to um, focus on the fine minutiae, which you need in animation. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So with with your your position as a digital effects artist, uh, what does that sort of entail? What what do you have to do with each job that that you like each project that you go on to, and what do you usually yeah. have to to do for that? Well, it's quite interesting when when people always think of uh, animation, they they don't realize there's a lot of other jobs involved um, other than animating a character. Uh, most of my work has been with uh, effects. Effects are things like um, natural phenomena like snow, rain, thunderstorms, dust. Um, I've worked on a lot of computer games where I've been doing explosions. It's all the things that basically that aren't the character or the environment. All of the other things. So going back to the classic Disney stuff, when everyone looks at the beautiful animation, I'm looking at how the winds have been blown across the road or um, how, how they've animated like each individual snowflake. Um, lots of things like that, especially water. Doing water oh, yeah. is a big thing and fire and explosions. Um, one of the things I, I learned, someone taught me in my career very early on, because obviously I wanted to be an animator and I ended up being a digital effects artist, is that... Um, they said not every movie, not every project will always require animation, but every movie and every project will always require effects. 
So if you can learn how to do effects and do well, you'll have a very, very healthy career. And, it, you know, it turned out to be right because I, I get to work on animated movies as, a, as an effects artist. And I get to work on non-animated movies as an effects artist. So um, yes. it's very sage. Of, you know, if any of these people are out there, everyone wants to do animation because, you know, that, that is the ultimate goal. But if, if, if um, some of the listeners, if, if they want to focus on effects, it'll put them in a very, very strong position to go on uh, in, in a studio. Well, first of all, it helped them get into a studio. Um, when I go for interviews, especially when the likes of Disney, uh, Lucasfilm, they come to London, they interview lots of people, um, and they have this huge room, and you all queue up, and it's a queue a mile long for animators, and there's a queue of about six or seven effects artists. So um, <laughs> the effects artists always get interviewed and have longer team because you know they have two or three guys there and um oh, yeah. yeah they've got to interview everyone so they, they spend a few minutes interviewing each animator or you can have a good half hour interview as an effects artist so um of course it, it's it's kind of inside information not everyone knows everyone rightly wants to be an animator but you know i would say if if, if some of you guys our listeners um take some time to look at how effects work it could be really advantageous for them awesome that's really great advice too it seems like because i mean it seems like like with what you just said it'd be you have a much better shot of uh landing the job than yeah with basically how many yeah. animators are versus absolutely i mean the odds are definitely in your favor and um, obviously now lots of movies are leading effects artists and you know, if you look at any of the the, the every movie, <laughs> you know, in a cinema has got effects in. Only a subset of those have had actual animation in. Awesome. What kind of tools do you use? Then, or soft, you know, different software uh, suites do you use for the jobs you've taken on? So, me personally, um, I focused on using Maya and Houdini. Um, the reason being because I've focused on, basically, um, Maya is um, a catch-all software. You know, you can do animation in it, you can do lighting in it, you can do effects in it. And a lot of studios have built their whole pipeline on Maya. So um, it's very prudent to use Maya. If you want to go beyond and, and, and push the envelope further, then there's a software called Houdini, which um, for effects is, is pretty much unrivaled, but it's very, very complicated to learn. It, it has got a lot simpler and a lot more user-friendly. So um, basically, if you know my, my and Houdini, I think um, that holds you, most of the job specs that I read all say my and Houdini. Um, that's not to say those are the two best softwares, but a lot of students have built their infrastructure on those, so you can kind of buy into that or, you know, branch out onto one of the other software tools, which I have to say are all equally good. It just um, depends what your, your, main, your main focus is, really. Awesome. So what do, what do you think is the most interesting project that you've worked on so far? 
Gosh, you know, I, I've actually, <laughs> it sounds um, very cliche. Each project has been interesting in its own way. Personally, I would say I worked on Batman Begins. I did um, the CG Bats. Nice. Um, I was a crowd, crowd sim TD. It was really interesting because I got to work with um, really close to the visual effects supervisor and had my work seen by, obviously, the director. The most interesting thing about that movie, which perhaps not everyone realises, is um, I, I did this scene where Bruce Wayne is in the Batcave and um, there's a tornado of bats that envelop Bruce Wayne and it's the most um, kind of emblematic part of cinema history at the moment Bruce Wayne discovers he's going to become Batman. I mean, you know, it's certainly one of the highlights of my career to actually do that, those shots as a real honor. And an interesting story is that um, that idea of the tornado only came back on uh, three or four days before we had to deliver it. So um, I think we had to deliver on a Monday night because um, some studios actually set the deadline on Monday, which means the artists can work the weekend, um, <laughs> which is a trend you see quite often quite happen a, a lot. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great way to work the weekend, really. But um, we hadn't actually got the idea of a tornado until uh, I think it was the Thursday. So um, I had to build a CG tornado of bats oh, <laughs> on uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday. So, but I mean, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of pressure, but the way that came together, I think it's just above and beyond um, any day-to-day -day work, uh, you know, probably the best weekend of working I've ever had. <laughs> well, and it's an incredible and an iconic scene, too. It's... Yeah. I mean, when, when people find out, especially when they see my showreel, and often right. people think I make that up, but then um, I point it to my showreel and they say, wow, you actually did that. <laughs> That's yours. That bad. That's, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it, it, was, it was just... Um, you could feel the excitement, you know, going in working on Batman, you could really feel in the atmosphere such a palpable sense of excitement by everyone for the whole, and I was in that movie for several months and every single day you felt excited for it, an honour to be working on Batman. Um, obviously, what Christopher Nolan did with that first movie, yeah. you, um, I don't know, it, it was very, very special. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience like working on the Harry Potter series? Uh, well, <laughs> this is why I feel guilty for blowing um, blowing everyone's uh, expectations out of the water. Um, someone said to me, working on Harry Potter, I think it was one of the producers, they said, they described it as getting on a very fast train and having to keep up and not being able to deviate slightly because you would the train would go off the tracks. So, such was the, the size of the train and the speed at which it travelled. Um, and yeah, I have to say, working Harry Potter, it seems like it was great fun, but it, it was very, very tough um, because you, you really had to meet a visual bar uh, across... It wasn't all done by one effects house, it was done by several effects houses, as most movies are, and it was part of an ongoing series. So I would say that's probably the most professional 
standards of work. You know, you had to be so precise on it. Everything had to be so precise, um, which is interesting because immediately after Harry Potter, I worked on Alien versus Predator, and um, the director came in and said, "Look, just have fun, do whatever you like." So <laughs> it was a nice break from Harry Potter, but. Harry Potter movies have done so much, especially for post-production companies in London, because um, I think when J.K. Rowling sold the rights, she stipulated that a certain amount of pre-production, production, post-production post had to be done in the UK. At that time, London was not one of the main centres for CG, and I think the Harry Potter films rarely put it on the map. Uh, in, in terms of competing with, um, with uh, you know, the, the Hollywood studios. So it, it felt like a real sense of responsibility, not just for the Harry Potter things, but you knew lots of people's jobs were depending upon this really working. And for a long time, Harry Potter was compared to Lord of the Rings. Right. Certainly for the first three movies, the effects were compared and that kind of added, added to the pressure. But in a good way, because I, I think now, when, if you look at the last few Harry Potter movies, the effects are just, uh, you know, on level with, with any anything you see anywhere. Right. Just kept getting better and better. Yeah, true. Yeah, and we were all learning as well. Yeah. Not only were we all learning, but the software was still being written. Definitely. So, so like, going from Harry Potter and, and then... Like you would, you'd eventually found your way to Ardman working on the the Pirates film with Peter Lord. Uh, how how was that? You know, I have to say, working at Ardman, um, it it was just, it was really the that has to be the best experience. It, uh, interesting story. Before I started working at Ardman. I had a chance to meet uh, one of the directors at BAFTA. There was a, a film and animation event on at BAFTA. And I was so nervous to go up and speak to him. But, um, you know, I plucked enough, up enough courage to approach him. And um, I thought, what should I say? So I had prepared to say to him, after Pixar, Ardman is the best animation studio in the world. But when I got to meet him, I was so nervous that I actually said... Um, Ardman is one of the best animation studios in the world. And he looked at me, put his hands on my shoulders and said, no, Ardman is the best animation studio in the world. So um, I'm kind of glad I didn't go in with a whole after Pixar oh, yeah. <laughs> part of my, my yes. story. Um, and I have to say, I, I was a few months after that, I got the job at Ardman. Um, and I moved across there. And I have to say from day one, I mean, it, it's something, they had this giant, giant warehouse on the edge of Bristol, and you walk in and you, you, you don't think you're at Ardman, and you're looking for the sign which says Ardman, it's a little sign that says Ardman, you walk in, and the moment you walk through those doors, it's, um, it's kind of like entering Disneyland for the first time, but, you know, when a kid enters Disneyland, you, you see giant sets, people building pirate ships, pirate taverns everywhere and um, my studio was at the back so I got every single day to walk past all these animations on giant green screens um, about 17 or 18 units filming uh, on the pirates and um, yeah I, I, 
I have to say that the people who work at Ardman, they, they were just, um, as well as being brilliant at what they do. And when I say brilliant, I mean exceptionally brilliant. They, they really made you feel part of the team. And the last day of filming, we had a, a little countdown uh, because we had to deliver all the shots and it was like five days left, four days left. And then it got down to like three hours, two hours, and everyone was so frantically trying to get the movie finished. They um, played like a countdown music over the whole Tano system, um, <laughs> waiting for the last shot to be done. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that time. It was, um, it was the most fun. You know, when I took the risk to quit my job and do the, the uh, degree at uni, university, to end up at Ardman, you kind of think all of that sacrifice, all that hard work, just for that, that one, even if that was the only moment I ever had in animation, um, it, it would have just been, been so worth it. And if you guys ever get a chance to visit, um, I recommend going, ringing uh, Ardman up and uh, just visiting the building because um, it's, um, it, it's all kinds of animation from claymation to CG stop motion, all kinds of things. And you can see the sets, um, see all the props, and it, the, the attention to detail that they put in, just phenomenal. I, you, I had to watch a Pirates three times to see all of the jokes. Um, yeah, I love that. But I saw the animators mm -hmm. animate. <laughs> yeah. That's actually uh, one, of, one of the films I hope, because uh, Argument hasn't made the sequel to anything that they've, they've done, really. So I, I would love for them to be able to to adapt another one of the, the Pirates books and make another film from that because I remember hearing Peter Lord talking about hoping that he could they could do another one eventually so hopefully yeah, I mean, that gets to happen. I think the interesting thing with Ardman is and it's not just with Ardman it's with anyone when you do a co-production with another studio Yeah, you really have to balance what you want to do with what your partner wants to do and i don't know see no disrespect to the studio they've worked with but if ardman could just have a free reign to do what they wanted to do yeah right you know without being reined in by a second party or a third party mm -hmm. um, and it's i've worked with lots of companies who have been owned by other companies and there is second guessing what would they want and um you know, you do so much good work and someone from another studio or your parent or your sponsor comes in and says, no, I don't really like that. Okay. <laughs> so, oh my God, it's three months work, worth of planning and execution because um, someone else didn't get it. Yeah, I really wish they could self, like basically self-distribute and do all that stuff because they, I remember they worked with DreamWorks for a time and then now they're working with, with Sony. So, yeah, it, it would be nice if they, they could... Could it be like just Ardman by themselves? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to this um, studio, artist-led studios or business-led studios. At the end of the day, someone's given you a lot of money. They want to see a return on it. Um, and you kind of have to give them what they want, really. Sometimes you have to compromise. Yeah. Whereas um, a lot of work that I do for myself is all artist-led, so I can do what I want to do without having to worry um, about what a a financier thinks of, of, um, yeah. of the art. That's almost what I think uh, Peter Lord went to, to Kickstarter for his Morph project that he wanted to do to 
basically get that financed so that he would have kind of his own free reign on doing what he wanted to do with Morph and whatnot. So yeah, that's definitely animation directors go down that path now um, to go through kick or any crowdfunding campaign um, and not have that pressure off. Because if you consider how well you can do when you do have someone sitting on your shoulder, how well could you do if, if you had complete creative control? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great avenue for all filmmakers. I, I, guess, I guess the segue from that, what kind of... And speaking about that, you did write, write a book about visual effects and CG survival guides for producers and filmmakers. So what kind of brought that about for you and made you decide to write that book to get those tips out for people to read and help them out well it's actually interesting i actually wrote that book after i finished at ardman because um in 2012 i um i worked for about 12 different animation companies all on short-term projects and um some of the producers who call themselves producers i really thought they needed a book um <laughs> that's the politest way i can put it um, and I, I just kind of wanted to give everyone a kind of a level playing field. I found a lot of producers were struggling. And one of the interesting things is when you go for a job as an animator or an effects artist, you have to put your work out there and you will be questioned and you have to give very specific answers on what you do. But um, you, people can tell straight away whether you can animate. Um, just by looking at your work and asking you a couple of basic questions. And I kind of felt with some of the producers who who were producing and need, needed more for grounding. And so I wrote this book. The, the other part of the book is, it, is that it's for filmmakers. Um, being a filmmaker, I always have other filmmakers asking me, I think you could just put a monster in here. <laughs> you could just um, make this uh, building explode. And... When I explained to them what's involved in it, they're like, wow, really? Um, so I wrote the book to kind of show filmmakers how they could prepare their films. You, if you make smart decisions earlier on in the process to add animation and CG into your films, into your projects, is, is basically an ABC step. You know, you follow the steps and it will work. But if you don't do things properly, you get this very convoluted uh, spaghetti junction of... Um, work and it costs a lot of money and I kind of wanted to put that book out because there aren't really any books specifically for those two groups of people and I kind of think I being a writer and being an animator why not put the two together and I've got lots of great feedback uh, for my book lots of people saying it's 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 been the book that they needed so they can go into meetings and talk with lighting directors or uh, riggers and actually understand what they mean when, when they plan out a project. And obviously a producer is so important to a project that they, they really need a very broad scope, but they don't need to go into too much detail. But So my book is more about width and, and giving them an understanding of everything without teaching them how to use the software, which really they don't want to know, nor do they need to know, they just need to know how information passes from different departments. Um, so that's what I talk a lot about in my book. Awesome. We'll definitely put a link to that in our show notes too, so people can check that out if they'd like to read that as well. So. Thanks. Awesome. 
Do you have a, a dream project or a studio that you really like to work for? Gosh. Um, you know, part of the reason I got into animation and CG was to make movies. Um, and I, I actually have about six screenplays that I'm working on. Uh, that all, some, some of them are mostly completed. Um, whilst I was at Ardman, they actually gave me, or they had an opportunity to pitch projects. And um, needless to say, I, I absolutely jumped at it. And um, I worked with some of the concept artists and storyboard artists at Ardman to develop my pitch. I went to the film, uh, the, the film executives at Ardman, pitched to them, followed up on the pitches. And the story that we came up with, obviously I can't get into too much details, um, but working through that process with them, I thought I so want my project to be picked as the next one that they're going to work on and to work on it at Ardman would have been um, a dream come true. Um, one of the things that I've been doing is I've building, I, I've made a couple of movies where I kind of built a studio in the cloud. So um, on the last two or three movies I've done, I've worked with artists, but we were never in the same space physical space. Um, I had people in different countries and we would talk via Skype or we would talk via any of these instant messaging things. We would share documents over the internet and we kind of had a a cloud, a studio in the cloud essentially. And that is so, so um, you have such a sense of freedom that you can work wherever you are. One day I took my laptop into the garden and just went on Wi-Fi and was animating out there with another animator adding effects in um so you know hopefully we could move towards that kind of a framework where we could all just work together um in virtual studios so and doing our own projects because of cost you don't have any costs of right. having to pay rent on a huge building you you have an internet connection and and you have um webcams really i mean what that's um Maybe something for the future. Who knows how things will go? I know you can now do all, all of these complex 3D and 2D programs. You can, a lot of the software companies are offering cloud computing where you don't need to own a $4,000 laptop. You can access Adobe or Autodesk's machines in the cloud and work off a very uh, modest machine, even a tablet perhaps and actually do all of the things that cost so much money. So, um, yeah, I, I wrote a blog post about it, which I can send you guys um, about cloud computing and how we can all work in the cloud together. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, you know, that, that would be a dream project, animating on a beach. So one of the guys was <laughs> in the Bahamas. He was doing my sound for me, and he was on, on, on holiday in the Bahamas doing sound for my movie. Um, and I had another guy... Again, they all tend to be by the beach, so um, I want to get myself out of the city and towards the beach. And right. Beach. <laughs> just, need to, just need a beach with Wi-Fi. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, um, I did apply to um, Lucasfilm in Singapore, and um, when when I talked to them and all the people from there, they were saying, in Singapore, you have Wi-Fi. You can't, there is nowhere where you don't ultra-fast. 100% reliable Wi-Fi. Um, 
So I think, I, I don't know what it's like in the US, but that's kind of like a utopian dream here in the UK, but there you are. Yeah, I think Google's working on something like that, where like they have like these balloons that are floating around that have like kind of hot spots on them or something like that, where basically you could be like in the middle of the desert and get Wi-Fi <laughs> off of it. I don't know how close to that it is to being like, you know, fully running and everybody being able to use it, but that that would be interesting if that yeah. were to, you know, be, but yeah. Yeah, like you were saying, we're like with, with Singapore, I definitely would, would assume if, if any place like uh, around there and Japan would definitely probably have Wi-Fi all over the place for you to. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the artists I worked with, um, there's this concept of a 24-hour workday. It doesn't mean you work 24 hours a day. It means you have a group of artists in uh, North America doing uh, the 9 to 5 there. And when they finished, a group of artists somewhere else in the world will start their 9 to 5. And when they finish, a group of artists in Europe and Asia, and just kind of, you can split a show up into different pieces and just have different groups of people working. And before you you know it, you use that economy and you, you start seeing things develop very fast. That'll be very cool. I've seen Illumination Entertainment has done some kind of stuff like that with uh, with some of their films where like some of it's produced in France and then some of it's produced back here in the US. So, and like they could do like their conference calls and things like that and pass well, things back and forth. So. You can actually apply for some some attractive tax breaks as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you just um, <laughs> have a few, um, especially um, wherever you have good tax treaties, um, find someone in that country to, to to come on board on your project and um, apply for a grant. That's all because that's always something our studio is definitely looking for is to save as much money as they possibly can. <laughs> uh, so. Speaking of, you know, like producing, writing and directing, you've done a few of your own projects that way too. How has that been basically working for yourself? We've kind of talked about that a little bit, but uh, with at least one of your your projects, Digitopia Discover Me, how how was that producing that film and writing it and, you know, directing that? Yeah, so for producing, I have to say, I do producing... Um, not out of choice, as it were. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, I want to die. You know, might probably like yourself. We we love to animate. We want to direct animation. Um, one of the ways to do that is to, you have to start producing your own stuff. Uh, you can't wait for anyone to come and you know knock on you. Your, your phone's not going to ring with someone saying, "Would you want to direct a movie? I'll produce it for you." So, producing is somewhat of a necessary evil. Um, and I found the times you get to direct and animate and write, even though that's about 10% of it and 90% is producing, just to get that 10% is worth to go through the 90% pain uh, of producing things. Um, although I've, in terms of directing and animating on my own projects, it's whilst you do it as a day job. You you are obviously part of um, a hierarchy, and someone has to approve it. It has to go to a client. It bounces back to you, and it goes backwards and forwards. It's a great way to really hone your skills. So when you do do it yourself, you're not going to have eight hours 
a day to do your own work. You may have a small amount of time, but you are so proficient in what you do because you've built up all of the skills by working at big studios. But when you do have a chance to do it yourself, you are very quick and you're very precise in what you do. Um, when I made Digitopia, I was um, working full time. I was working crunch hours. We also had a baby, a newborn baby. So I was uh, coming home, getting the baby to bed, building the, the baby furniture, sterilizing bottles. And I pretty much start on Digitopia at about 11.30, midnight. And I'd animate till about 2 a.m. But in those two hours, between midnight and 2 a.m., I did more animation than I did in a whole day at work. Oh, wow. So um, it really, you know, directing your own things, you, you, you focus and you, you don't get distracted. I put my music on very low volume and uh, just, just um, you know, I've got eight hours work done in two hours. So, um, yeah, it's very, very intense and very, very rewarding. And both Stanford and I watched watched the film and we, we enjoyed it a lot. Uh, what, what kind of Stanford? You you kind of had a question about it. Did you want to? Well, I I thought it was really uh, an interesting and thought provoking piece, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind giving us some background in, into into your thought process or or what made you decide to tell that story. Yeah. So. This, this leads into the, the bigger thing about wanting to direct animation. That film, Digitopia, Discover Me, is actually one scene from the whole screenplay. So I actually have a whole screenplay that I was going to pitch. And uh, we prepared for storyboards, we prepared concept art, and we're about to pitch. And then this thing called the credit crunch happened, and all of the people who were saying, well, pay, well, we need projects, they all closed, you know? Uh, the film council closed, the UK film closed, all of these European film treaties all closed their doors. So um, I'd spent all of these years writing and perfecting a script and, you know, no one's going to spend any money. So what I decided to do was to kind of be proactive about it. So I chose one scene from the movie and I wanted to show I have the script, I have the budgets, which I've been diligently preparing. Now I have a short film so kind of show that, look, I, I can make this movie and you can trust me with the money. So I took one scene from that movie and, and turned it into the film that you guys have seen. So um, there's a whole, whole backstory um, about the characters in the movie, which is explored in the wider screenplay. I, a few months ago, I made another part, another scene from the movie. Um, and called it, it's called Nitro Dust, uh, which is another part of the screenplay. So slowly by slowly, I am building up the whole movie. It may be <laughs> several shorts that I'm going to have to put together at some stage before I get... I'm, I may even have a whole movie done before I get funding for it, so it should be quite interesting. Now, we watched Nitro Dust as well. That was on part of the reel, uh belief that you, you had sent us, if I'm not mistaken. Was that the one that you combined the, uh, the Western... With yes. the with the that was a really that was also uh, really n nicely done. Tell us about that if you wouldn't mind too. Yeah, so when I made Digitopia Discover Me, it took me fourteen months, pretty much, doing 
an hour, sometimes half, half an hour a night for 14 months. When I had a chance to make Nitro Dust, I had a group of animators for four days. And it was very ambitious, but I thought either I can kill myself for four days and I think I slept maybe six hours in four days. <laughs> wow. And I didn't see my, I went, went in on a, I went into the animation studio on a Friday morning and I didn't come back. I didn't leave until Monday night. And the, 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 the thing is either I could do it over 14 months or I could just compress it into four days. So when I made Nitro Dust, I, I've always wanted to make a car chase animation and I've always wanted to make a Western. And I thought, I've got a team. This is the only time I've ever had a team of talented art. Well, obviously, all people I work with. It's the only time I've had a team in the same physical place at the same time. But um, I'm going to make a Western car chase movie. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a real adventure, I have to say. I mean, just when you live it and you, you have people, animators, who want you to succeed as much as you want to make the movie, you, you know you have to push yourself. Um, so yeah, and, and I got a second part of the movie made, so now I have to make the third, third scene from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you go back and watch them in sequential order and whatnot. Yeah, I, I may um, hire an editor to uh, put them out of order and confuse you, confuse <laughs> a few people what's going on. <laughs> Interesting enough, I've had a few music DJs who've seen my movies and said they'd love to remix them as oh. well. So it's like, wow, it could um, it could get even even more strange with um, psychedelic electro Europe. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be a very interesting addition. Yeah. Awesome. So, so what, what's next for you, you think, after everything you've worked on now and stuff you have going on with for you? Yeah, I mean where to begin really um i i i'm going to take the the screenplay of digitopia i've started writing books on kindle my vfx book being the first book i wrote on kindle and with the films that i've made i'm planning on making a um a graphic novel slash screenplay of digitopia which uh, will go onto kindle I may well be doing a crowdfunding campaign <laughs> to actually pay for some very expensive artists to work on it. Um, I kind of want to use the internet. Before, when, when you had to send your screenplay off to someone, they'd give it to a reader, the reader would have to read it. The first gatekeeper would pass it to the second gatekeeper. And ultimately, it may or may not go anywhere. So I, I'm trying to of use the social internet as a way to um all these screenplays that i've written to start putting them on 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 kindle and then hopefully they'll get enough social validation um that um someone will say we want to make that into a movie and they'll be oh that's convenient because i have a screenplay all set to go <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah I, I kind of think graphic novels is um I've got a lot of uh, the storyboards already uh, drawn up and with a link of the animation, you know, and, and blogging and all of those things. Uh, one of the other projects I'm doing is actually a uh, children's animation, um, which I'm going to first of all write the book 
because it's this whole concept of having low-hanging fruit. I, I thought writing a book was low-hanging fruit, but it's really not. There's a lot of work <laughs> involved. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I read somewhere about a lot how a lot of these books are being optioned. So again, you can either go through a publishing company or you can put it on Kindle yourself. Right. Um, so a lot of, I'm focusing the past few months on, on writing. I wrote, wrote a parenting book. I say it's a parenting book. It's a book about fatherhood, which um, is doing very well on Amazon. So I'm learning the whole Twitter, blogging, Google Plus thing and how to create an audience. Uh, and with that audience, make the movie event. It, you know, it's not ultimately necessary to have a studio make your movie for you. You can make it yourself. And if you can use the crowdfunding campaigns with your community uh, to raise some money, you, you can make a movie. One of the things I've learned in working Harry Potter and all of these things is um, I worked with one animator on Harry Potter. You know how you, you've put a, sh- a, um, a shot through dailies and it comes back with notes. You do the notes, you put it back through dailies, it comes back with notes. One of the animators was on um, iteration 37 off his shot and um he, you know you, you you'd look at him he was a broken you know he, he's um fresh-faced animator by iteration 37 he was a broken man um <laughs> yes and kind of what i've learned is you don't need to do 37 iterations the films that i've made the first film i made everything was done on one sh- one take because i didn't have enough film that it's actually something interesting in a Pixar video I saw on YouTube. Um, it's called Pixar of Human History. I watched it several years ago. One of the things that they said, I think it's Andrew Stanton said about Toy Story, no matter how good we make the animation, no matter how much time we put into it, it's going to look dated very quickly. Um, and that's kind of, I, I took that and listened to him that you can really spend a lot of time iterating or you can use your time to tell a story. And certainly in all the films I've done, including the animations, <laughs> they've always been at most two iterations. Most of them, have, I've not had the time to go and do 37 iterations of the same shot because I know even if I do 37 iterations, it's still gonna look dated in a couple of years. So why not focus on telling the story and, and kind of focusing on the whole thing and put as much detail in as you can, but you can't stay there forever. Um, so that's kind of how I'm keeping the costs really low. I'm keeping artists. I, and the other thing I do is the animators I work with, I give them 100% ownership of their shots. I write a style guide, I write what I want, we talk about it. But from then on, the animator owns it. Um, and what comes through in the movies is, is, is real collaboration because at the end of the day, the animator or the artist or the sound designer has to gain something from it. And it has to be something that they're proud of, that they can say, I worked on this. And hopefully they may get a, a job at a big studio somewhere. So um, yeah, really that's kind of a, the model I'm going for is is much more of a collaborative process. Awesome. I'm definitely interested in just seeing what 
you're going to be putting out as well too. So looking forward to everything that you've talked about and what you're going to be working on. Excellent. I just have to deliver now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we think you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, we want to thank you again for, for coming on the show today. Uh, this is usually the part where we tell everybody where they can follow us on Twitter. Where can they find you on the internet? Yes, yeah, so um, I run two blogs. Um, my film and animation blog is uh, www.digitopiafilm.com. That's D-I-G-I-T-O-P-I-A, film.com. It's a, a kind of a play that I want to make a, a utopian digital studio, so I named it Digitopia. Um, and my Twitter for that one is at FahanQ underscore UK. Uh, the second blog I run is a, a parenting blog because um, I um, kind of think that a lot of people who work long hours need um, something that balances the work and, and home time. So I, I run a website called www.workingparent.info and um, my Twitter for that is at parentworking. So it, it's not in, it does have a heavy CG and animation focus, but I'm trying to keep the animation on Digitopia and the parenting on Working Parent because um, there aren't many websites for parents who actually have a full-time job and want to uh, do something, whether it's making an animated movie like we guys are or doing a business in, in another industry. I kind of felt um, a website for that would, would support a lot of people. Anything else you wanted to, to add today, Sanford? No, just uh, thank you. It's been a great, great discussion. I, I've learned a lot. And I'm very excited, Farhan, to check out your blogs and to to uh, read more about your terrific work. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. Uh, and don't forget, guys, you can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Mark Vibbert, M-A-R-C-B-I-B-B-E-R-T. And I'm at Stanford Clark. Or you can follow the show at Animated Podcast. Feel free to email us at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can visit our site at animationfascination.wordpress.com. You can find all the latest news articles and stuff of that nature. Uh, and you can also like us on Facebook just by searching for Animation Fascination. So I'm Mark Vibbert. For myself, Stanford Clark, and our guest, Farhan Q. Rishi. Thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in again next time, guys. Thank you again, Farhan, for coming on. We yes, really thank you. It. This was no, fascinating. Thank for, um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I, um, I really enjoyed that. Thanks. England swings like a pendulum do. Bobby's on bicycles two by two. Westminster Abbey, the Tower of Big Ben. The rosy red cheeks of the little children. Now if you huff and puff and you finally save enough money up Take your family on a trip across the sea Take a tip before you take your trip Let me tell you where to go Go to England, oh England swings like a pendulum do Bobby's own bicycles two by two Westminster Abbey, the Tower of Big Ben The rosy red cheeks of the little children
all of a sudden I just heard like this music blasting and I was like, what the heck's that? <laughs> mute. Yeah, no, I had to mute it as well. <laughs> With Phil, uh, oh, wow. Philip Lord. No, I'm thinking of Phil the Lego movie for a second. Or casually drop it into a conversation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>